I'm in the middle of a series, you might not know, but I am, uh, called Mount Flourishing. And what I'm doing in my spare time, which is enormous, I have an enormous amount of spare time. What I'm doing in my spare time is uh, working my way through the Sermon on the Mount, right, and thinking about it. Um, you know, as Christians, um, we say, lots of people say this thing about Jesus, not just Christians. They say this thing about Jesus, that he was a great teacher. Who's heard that thing about Jesus? He's a great teacher. Uh, And as Christians, we say that he was the son of God and a great teacher. And we talk about, and there's even a quote flying around the internet uh, of of, uh, Queen Elizabeth talking about how the teachings of Christ have guided her, which is a cool thing, isn't it? But have you ever asked yourself, what are the teachings of Christ? Like there's all these stories and miracles and parables, but what are the teachings? And if you were looking for a simple place to start, which is where I... I like to start uh, because if I don't understand it, then I get upset. Um, I, I think Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, not, it's not the whole thing about Jesus, but he teaches a whole bunch of things in there. Who's heard of these things? Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things I've noticed is that the Sermon on the Mount has got a strong connection with, uh, with some key sort of well-being ideas that get thrown around or used, the ideas that get used in the area of like positive psychology, which sort of drives this mental health idea, right? That's what I do for a day job. So I do workplace training and mental health and well-being. I do post-traumatic debriefs and diffusers. And my favorite thing to do, this will surprise some of you, my favorite thing to do is conflict resolution. Some of you think my favorite thing to do is just conflict. But, uh, but I like to do conflict resolution uh, because it's a chance for me to learn and grow. Uh, anyhow, um, the start of the Sermon on the Mount starts like this. It says that when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and he sat down. His, his disciples came to him. Other translations would say that he called his disciples to him, right? But as, anyway, his disciples come up the mountain as well. Where did they come from? They came out of the crowd and up the mountain towards Christ, and he began to teach them. And I've used colors to connect crowds to the word them, right? So yes, he's teaching his disciples, but he's also speaking to the whole human story. And if we think about the whole world, or the people of the world, or the ways of the world, or the thoughts of the world, it's this idea of the crowds, the multiplicity, the diversity, the fluidity of a crowd. Have you ever seen a crowd? When you see a crowd, you can't see anyone. You can just see a crowd. For what we see in this little, little, it's really that often it's a bit, this is a bit of the Sermon on the Mount that mostly gets skipped. Most people just go straight. They think this is just, you know, stage directions. (laughs) But there are no stage directions in the Bible. This is a shape. This is the context that the writer put the whole Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of Christ elevated above the, the, the multiplicity of the crowd. Christ is elevated above the crowd. Right? So he's not a great teacher. He's actually the great teacher. Right? In fact, he's not just the great teacher. He's the teacher. All the others are trying to be like a teacher. Anytime you're trying to be a Every time you're being a teacher, you're not really. You're trying to be like the teacher, right? So he's above the crowd, but he calls his disciples out of the crowd, right? And that's a challenge for us as Christians is our, our whole thing of following the teachings of Christ, becoming more like Christ. They're, two, they're, two, they're the same thing, 
right? It's this coming closer to Him. It's relational, like it's warm and cozy, right? And that's sort of the dominant shape of contemporary Christianity, right? It's sort of romantic and that Jesus is, is Jesus loves us. And we and, and this is all true, by the way, I'm not, I'm not dissing out. I'm saying that's a dominant part of it. But it's also, we're coming closer to Him in terms of alignment, right? Like railway tracks have a relationship to each other, don't they? And if the relationship between track A and track B on the railway track, if that relationship is somehow dysfunctional, disaster ensues, right? And that's the same with us. It's not just a relationship of romantic connection by romantic, I mean, of like love feelings. It's also this shift in positional, positional relationship, right? So our journey following Jesus is, yes, we've got the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, but that's going to shift us and change us as well as we come up the mountain, as we're elevated out of the fluidity, diversity, chaos of the crowd, we're lifted into a place of greater order to reflect Christ more perfectly, right? So when we say he's a great teacher, we don't want to just say he's a great teacher and then forget what he said. We want to identify with his teachings and allow them to shift and change us. Yeah? And if we don't do that, we're just part of the crowd. Right? And when we're in the crowd and we say, yeah, he's a great teacher, and, and so is this person, and so is that person, right? we're forgetting the fact that he's son of God, so he's actually elevated above all things, beyond all things, but also in all things and through things. So the similar that goes on, and it says this idea of blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Right? So the sermon starts with this idea, blessed, which if you were here a few weeks ago, a month ago, we talked about blessed is different. It's got nothing to do with things. Just take the idea of things and push them away. So when Nathaniel gets a new Ferrari and he takes a photo of it for Instagram and he writes, hashtag blessed, he's incorrect. The photograph, the Ferrari is not a blessing. It's a talent that's been given to him. Right? Because anything, anything you get is a talent that comes with responsibility. So you should take the photo of the Ferrari and write hashtag wasted talent. Right? <laughs> Because you're given a bunch of resource and you've wasted it, right? That's what you're really, and, and other Christians are not going to celebrate with you. I'm not going to celebrate your Ferrari. I'm just going to think there's a way better thing you could have done with $500,000. I just know there is, right? Don't be nervous. If you have a Ferrari, good for you, right? But there's better things you could do with the money. That's just what I'm saying. Is there not? There's better things you could do, right? And, you could, and then you can show me your finances and show me all the better things you are doing with your money. Okay, anyway. Forget the comparative, just the picture is the important one, right? This idea of blessing is a relational idea that we come into a correct relationship with God. When I say God, I'm meaning Yahweh, the God of Scripture, who the word Yahweh means He who causes things to be. So whenever we as Christians talk about God, we're not talking about a God among the gods, we're talking about the God who causes all the things to be, causes being itself causes matter and makes matter matter. This is Yahweh, right? And coming into a correct relationship with Yahweh is blessing, right? Part of the ancient word blessed is this idea of kneeling. And when God blesses you, do you get a Ferrari or do you come into a correct relationship with Him, right? Part of the word is kneel, kneel, right? When God blessed Abraham, and God blessed Isaac, the Bible says, God blessed Isaac, Isaac sowed seed, and he produced this massive crop. And we think, oh, blessing. No, the blessing was here when God blessed him. God knelt him down. God shifted him. 
God moved him in a way so that he could now be in correct relationship. Because as Christians, as even in the ancient Hebrew world, the understanding is this, that we want to worship God, but we can't even worship him. We need him to kneel us down. We need him to bring us into a right position. That's why we can't judge other people. That's why we don't judge outside of the church. We don't say this, that, the other thing about. That's why we're not, spo- that's why we're not supposed to. I, for a minute there, I said we don't judge. But what I, what I mean to say was why we, we try not to. Is that better? We try not to judge. But without, what well, would we be uh, without judgment? We would, what would social media be? It would just be a vast and arid landscape with only cats. Although pretty, cats are pretty judgmental. Uh, okay, so blessed, correct relationship with the God who causes all things to be, which creates our interconnectedness with creation and all the things. Amen? Right? And I reckon that somewhat equates with this idea of flourishing. Right? There are, like, there are continuities and discontinuities. There's, flourishing has got us probably a slightly more abstract view of spirituality, whereas in terms of the scriptural understanding of blessed, it's really clear. It's about a relationship with the God who causes things to be that then shapes the way we experience reality in a powerful way. Um, There's another Bible word called shalom, which is really closely related to blessed, where God brings things into alignment, sometimes translated peace, right? Um, And I just love this quote from, um, that someone sent me, uh, Andrew Randall's, sent me on Facebook after the last time he heard me talking about blessed. He sent me this quote. So I thought I'll share it with you. Is that all right? Not on Facebook, though, just in person. It's like, like old school sharing the idea. Okay, so in the Bible, shalom, so peace and blessing, means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. That's a big, that's a big word, right? Universal flourishing, wholeness of delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And that's Cornelius Plantinga Jr., who's a sort of a philosopher type dude, right? So this is the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. So when we think about the organized teachings of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, it opens with this idea of blessing, right? Here's the thing. We can come into right relationship with the entity, the person who causes all the things to be. That's blessing, right? That's the message of hope. It's not that we can just acknowledge him from afar or we can serve him. We can acknowledge him and we can serve him, but we can also come into right relationship with him. So we can, our life can begin to work in a way uh, that, that life, way more than just work, it can, it can flourish in a powerful, powerful way. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount is the story of the house on the rock where Jesus wraps up his teaching, starts with this idea of blessing, he wraps up this teaching with, if you hear what I say and do it, you'll stand, right? If you hear what I say and you don't do it, it doesn't matter that you heard it. In fact, the, there's a subtle hint throughout Scripture that if you hear what God says and don't do it, it would have been much better for you if you hadn't heard, right? When mom says, did you hear me when I told you to do the dishes? It would be better for you if you did not hear, 
right? If you say to your mum, yeah, I heard, right? There's a whole new conversation is about to begin, right? And God and all authority operates in exactly the same way. Once we hear, to quote Brooke Fraser, now we are responsible, right? Once, once we're aware, now we've got responsibility. But here's the other thing, when, with responsibility comes this power, right? Once we hear, when we see, oh, so here's the, the bit in the Bible says this, it says, when the, when the law comes or the word of God comes, sin abounds, right? So when God speaks, we suddenly realize how far away from God we are, right? But then when sin abounds, so once we suddenly realize how big our sin is, so, we, so if you think about sin being just the gap between you and God, when the word of God comes, we realize, oh, how big is this gap? But once we realize, oh, how big is this gap? It says that grace much more abounds. Right? So when God speaks to us in the, the Sermon on the Mount, and we are, man, we've got to do something about this thing, grace is abounding to us. Right? And what do we do about it? We receive God's grace. We allow Him to work in the world. I heard a great definition of grace. Steve, you can tell me about this one, whether it's good or not later. But I'll just share it with everyone, and um, you can share your opinions online. The, um, a great definition of grace, grace, Grace equals God did it. We are saved because God did it. We, we can come into relationship with God because God did it. He did it, right? So when it comes to, when you hear my words and don't put them into practice, go, I've got to hear God's word. I've got to allow him to work in me so that we can put these things in practice, right? And his grace is abounding in me. Amen? Very good. Just, just a little introduction. And the next thing was to do a recap of the previous two sermons, right? So this is going to be a fast recap, right? So point number one is there is such a thing as up. Jesus went up the mountain. If, if, every, if all the lifestyles are the same, if all the behaviors are the same, if all the multiplicity, well, you can just choose your own truth. If that's true, then there's no up. If there's no up, you'll, 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 you just have to be you the way you are now forever. You, if you, that's the worst possible message to send to somebody. You're just great the way you are. Nathaniel, you're just great the way you are. It sounds nice, doesn't it? But that says, I can't see all the things that you struggle with and you've, that are tough inside you and you don't like about yourself. You just need to suck it up because you're great the way you are. You're going to be like that forever. Wouldn't it? Is a much more inspiring messages. You're nowhere near what you could be, right? I'm not. I'm just picking on Nathaniel because he has high uh, self-esteem. I almost said ego. I mean self-esteem, <laughs> self-assurance. Yeah, yeah. In Christ, right? But here's the deal. Who's a, we, we didn't come here to, to your holy Lord, high and lifted up. We are the, one of the central things we're doing here is we're focusing up. Put, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Where's Jesus? Oh, is that me fixing my eyes on Jesus? No, oh, we're all the same and everything's fine. That's not Jesus. Jesus is up, right? There is such a thing as up and there is such a thing as down. Some things are not as valuable as other things. As soon as you have an up, you get a hierarchy because less people are up. Rank all the basketball players in the world. Most people can't play basketball at all, Right? And Michael Jordan can play basketball better than everybody else, right? Or choose your favorite basketball player. We don't just believe in up as Christians. <laughs> Close your eyes, look into your heart. There's also down in there, isn't there? There's a thing that wants to pull you down, right? 
there's a thing that wants to drag you down, right? And that, that down hierarchy is real too. When we relate with Jesus, he draws us up. Just like if you have a relationship with Michael Jordan, you'll get better at basketball. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you get better at flourishing. You get better at life, right? Do you ever get to be as good as Michael Jordan if you play basketball with Michael Jordan? I'm looking at you, answer the question. No, you don't, right? But you get to be better at your version of basketball, which is fine, right? Right? Jesus fills everything everywhere with his presence. If you go and watch 12-year-olds play basketball, Michael Jordan will be represented. Someone will be wearing his shoes. You walk in the mall, people are not playing basketball, but for some reason they're still wearing his shoes. I've seen people wearing Michael Jordan clothes, and I'm sure that if they were to play one-on-one basketball with Michael Jordan, they wouldn't measure up. They wouldn't measure up. When it comes to basketball, they would be what the Bible describes as sinful, falling far short, right? Just like Jesus, he, Jesus fills everything with his presence. And if we can relate with him, he lifts us up. Doesn't matter where we are in life. He's at the bottom as well. The bottom is broken and blessed, right? The poor, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. None of these people have Ferraris. The poor, the mourning, hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers and the persecuted. And I wrote a poem to capture that for you. So I'll share this with you. As I see Jesus more clearly, I can see that I don't have the resources to make it happen for myself. So it's poor. I've put brackets in. I'm explaining the poem, which you're not supposed to do, right? So belief in myself as the Savior has to die more and more. Mourn, right? I am physically desperate for things to be put right. Hunger and thirst, right? I can feel it in my stomach. I can see that brokenness and evil wasn't other people's fault. Merciful. They are hurt and broken like I am. So now my motivations to see change are not mixed up with my need for personal advancement or revenge. Pure in heart, right? Now I can work freely to build peace, peacemaker. And there's nothing you can do to stop me because I'm not worried about being persecuted, right? Okay, moving on. We're just recapping. So we're going fast. Sorry. We'll slow down at the end. We'll start fast and just get slower and more turgid as we go through the sermon. Who's excited about that? Nobody, right? The Holy Spirit leads us to dry land, right? These, are all, these messages are all recorded, so you can listen to them in your own time, but you won't. That's why I'm recapping. The Holy Spirit leads you to dry land, right? And then I've got a picture of this process. This is the story of uh, Noah's flood, right? So there's down, this down force in humanity ultimately leads to everything falling apart. We're in the middle of a similar sort of process. As the world celebrates everything, oh, everything is God, everything is fine, everything is good, rather than saying, no, some things are better than other things. When we say everything is good, that empowers the down force, right? Genesis chapter 6 says everyone's, uh, judges, everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes. And then you just see chapter after chapter after chapter of chaos, right? In a chaos process, plagues, wars, rumors of war, in this chaos process, as the systems and structures that hold our society together fall apart and die, this downforce creates the flood. That's where the crowd covers all the mountains. That's what happens in the flood. The water covers all, even the highest mountain. And God locks, locks his plan up inside this boat, and then the dove is released, the Holy Spirit, and the dove says there's dry land. Right? I went relatively fast through the story of Noah there. But where does the ark land? 
Here's a weird thing. It lands on the top of the mountain. So what happens in all the chaos, if we can connect in with God, God floats us in the chaos, right? How many people drowned in COVID? You put your hand, you're, you, actually, you drowned in COVID. You were not in an ark. You were not floating along. You just drowned. Okay, me, this is how it happened for me, right? All of you guys were in the ark, just the presence of God there having a great time. I was just drowning with everyone else, right? Burning 5G towers and I was, just, I was in it, right? Now, why? Because the chaos covered all the mountains. I didn't, know what, I didn't know what was up. I didn't know what was down. I didn't know where I was going. Ever been hit by a really big wave, right? But the Holy Spirit brings us to dry land. He elevates us to that place of strength and safety. Okay. How about that for a recap? That was just two sermons. The recap was a little longer than the actual sermons, but uh, you can listen to them in your own time, which moves us to the next part of the Sermon on the Mount. All right? Key point, there is such a thing as up. If there wasn't, when we came to church, we, the worship leader would just say, move your hands about. No, we lift, we lift our hands. Why? Because there is such a thing as up. There's a version of you that's better than version of the, the version that we see right now. Right? There's a version that's much worse as well. So, you know, you're doing okay. Right? There's a version of you that's better, right? And that lifts us up. And that's what we see in the Sermon Mount is this elevating, the elevating principles of God that can work in our world and lift us, right? To a state of being that's blessing, that state of being and a way of living that's elevated. So let's talk about salt and light. Is that all right? in our remaining time, right? The Bible says this, that you are the salt of the, some people said world and some people said earth. Earth is the better term, right? They're not interchangeable. The earth is what God created. The world is usually referring to the human corruption of the earth, right? You're not the salt of the world. You're the salt of the earth, right? You're the salt of the earth. If salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? This is a rhetorical question. There's no, you can't make it salty again, is the point Jesus is making. Once salt is not salty, what is it? You can't really call it salt anymore, eh? Once salt is not salty, it's nothing. It's just more earth, right? Salt is good. It's salt, the, the, Salt has a power, and it's got to do with its saltiness, right? It's no longer good for anything. It must be thrown out and trampled on by people, right? So there's always people ready to trample on meaningless things. So don't worry. If you do become meaningless, there'll be plenty of people around who are happy to trample on you, right? Right? You are the light of the world, the Bible goes on. A city that's located on a hill cannot be hidden, People don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket, right? Or a bushel, as the old song goes, eh, right? Right? People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but a lamp is put on a lamp stand so that it can give light to the whole house. You can see that picture again? The light's put up on the light stand. It gives light to the whole house, right? In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see your Correct theology. So I think that's what it says. So they can see your ridiculous Marxist version of theology. No. So they can see your, no, it's just your good deeds. Turns out your theology isn't the light. It's your behavior in the world that is the light. 
put, let your light shine so that people can see your good deeds and then they'll give honour to your Father in heaven. It turns out good deeds bring honour and glory to God much more than good theology. Although I think good theology can help us to operate in good deeds. So we do want good theology, but it's not the critical thing when it comes to light, which is, I think, is counterintuitive. I've got a diagram for you that's really important because Jesus said we're the salt of the earth. So I'm just going to have a diagram of what the earth is, right? So we need to start with the universe, right? So in the beginning, God created what? Well, it doesn't say the universe, but yeah, great to have Pastor Steve here. Uh, right? He knows all the answers to all the questions so far, right? So... Uh, God creates, this thing that the universe God creates, he, he creates the heavens and the earth, right? And I've, done, I've extended my diagram, right? The heaven is above and the earth is below. And the heavens are filled with things and the earth is filled with things. So the heaven gets filled with, particularly important to recognize, the heaven is filled with lights, which we'll talk about later, right? So the heaven gets filled with lights uh, and then the earth has got dry land and sea and they get separated, but we're not including that in the diagram. We're just going to think of the earth all together. It's the dry land and the sea. Things we can understand and things we can't understand. God creates the earth, all right? And then he creates... He puts in the middle of this diagram, he puts the image of himself, right? So God wants to put in the middle of his creation, he wants to put the image of himself, and that's man, right? The Bible says God creates man, male and female, right? So God creates this binary biological entity out of the dirt or the earth. And then what does he do? God creates Adam in the dirt. This is Genesis chapter 2. He makes a... Adam in the dirt. It's like, wow, look at the dirt. Right? So God's like, it's the first sandcastle. As, I reckon it's one of the reasons where if you go to the beach and you just lie, lie there, you feel like you're home. Right? You feel like you're reconnecting with the universe in a powerful power. Do you not? You, I reckon you do. Like, where else does it feel quite as good as that? Where you lie down in the sand, right? You're recapturing this you're becoming the original sandcastle, right? And then what does God do? God breathes life. He breathes spirit, right? So God creates earth and he breathes spirit in. And the only entities in all of the universe that are earth and heaven are people. It's worth recognizing that we, f- we fit into a pretty important little place between earth and heaven. And when Jesus is speaking his word to us, his word comes out of heaven to the earth, just the same as God's original picture of humans, that we, we live this earthly life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's pretty earthy at Jordan Smith world, right? There's a lot of dirt goes on and it's not all dirt, right? There's a lot of stuff. Some of it's included and there's manure included in the whole dirt picture, right? And then in, in a church environment, in a worship environment, and I know we worship God all through the week, but what we're doing in the, in the shape of our week, setting aside a day to worship, is recognizing that we can't maintain our earthly existence without the input of heaven that lifts and elevates our existence, right? And that's what we're doing when we talk about salt. Salt has an elevating property when it comes to food. I've got an interesting relationship with my doctor, um, 
he, um, I got because I have had asthma since I was a child. I go to the doctor every few months, and you do a checkup, and then they give you a prescription. And one of the things they always do is they do your blood pressure. And it used to be more fun. Like they used to pump it up and they had the stethoscope and it was all very mysterious. Now they just press go on the machine, walk out and come back in. They're seeing another patient probably in the next room. Right? And they put the blood pressure thing on, they do the blood pressure and then what does the doctor always say? He says, oh, that's fine. And I never even knew what blood pressure was, but I was getting my blood pressure taken every six months for my whole life, right? Until I was 38, the doctor did the thing and then he said, oh, situation, right? Um, And I was like, oh, that's not what you don't want your doctor to say, right? To do your blood pressure and then say, oh, situation, right? Because situations do happen, right? Um, and um, just so you know, he didn't say situation. He said another word. And then a long process ensues. So my blood pressure turned out to be 220 over 180, which is about twice as what you want it to be, right? And I said to the doctor, how high is that? Because like, I like to win. I'm a competitive kind of guy. He said, he said, that's as high as I've ever seen blood pressure. It's about as high as blood pressure can go, right? And I was like, yeah, I'm like a gold medal. I'm the gold medal winner. We're like, I'm a seriously New Zealand record holder, right? Most people who have blood pressure that high die because they lack resilience. For me, though, I'm strong, right? So anyhow... Then you, when the doctor discovers that, you then have this long conversation, eh? Oh, this and that, and you have to lose. You have to do a lot of boring things. You have to lose weight, drink less alcohol, and stop eating certain foods. And one of the things he says is you need to. He says that it's recommended if you have a male doctor, they're pretty practical, right? So he said it's recommended that you don't add salt to your food. And then he laughed, <laughs> and he goes, "Good luck trying to eat an egg or some chips, right?" Have you ever eaten an egg without salt on it? <laughs> well, here's some chips. You, you see people eat chips with no salt. You, they get the chips and there's no salt on them. They think there's salt. They put the chip in their mouth and then they'll, they'll spit it out. It's almost biblical. They'll spit it out of their mouth. Like, Bleh. A chip without salt is not even food. <laughs> right? But what does salt do? Salt elevates. Right? So point number one today and there's only two points. There's only one point today, looking at the clock. Um, <laughs> is that you're salt, not pepper, right? So think about, salt, pepper's good too, right? Think about a, a cracker. If you don't believe, I'm just, just to prove the point, the salt elevates. Think about a cracker, just a Huntley Palmer's standard, right? Some cabin bread, right? And then you put some cheese on that, and then you slice a slice of fresh tomato. That's good, isn't it? And then you put a bit of salt on it. Yeah, someone's, uh, someone's feeling it. Who's feeling it down, deep down in your soul? There's something religious that takes place. There's a transubstantiation of this particular morsel from being just food now to be something that elevates. Now it's a snack, right? Or it's a treat, right? Now it's afternoon tea. Up till then, it was just calories, right? Now... Now it's something that's beautiful, right? So salt elevates. Now, pepper doesn't lift the flavor of what's already there. It adds its own special thing. Hallelujah, brother. Glory, glory, glory. So look at you during the week. Look at yourself during the week. Right? There you are. You're being salt. Or are you being pepper? Are you elevating the flavors? Well, you're bringing your own thing, brother. Oh, glory, glory, glory. See, I reckon at work you're going to have way more fun 
if you're salt. You're going to have way more impact. You're going to have a way more closer relationship with Jesus if you can dissolve into the environment and elevate it rather than sit on top of what's going on and bring your own spicy, <laughs> spicy takes. Right, your own your own little angle, right? Well, this is what Jesus would have said. This is what Christians believe. This is this is what I reckon. This and and then most of that's just what Mark said anyway. But the reality is, there's something special that happens at work when you can dissolve into it. Because what's work? It's not much different to a Huntley Palmer's cracker with cheese and a bit of tomatoes. You got to go there, right? You got to pay the mortgage. You got to do things. What about parenting? Oh, it's a real blessing, brother. Mm. It is, isn't it? It's just a wonderful joy. The very, that's, that, that's the peppery take, eh? Right? In reality, it's a, it's a lot of... At my house, it's a lot of catering. Straight, we don't cook food anymore. We cater. Right? There's three teenagers, uh, two te- three teenage boys, and then Lucia, who doesn't eat anything. But that's okay. Right? When you put food together, it's not like, what, well, what sort of meal will we make? It's just like, who, how many are we catering for today, Right? And then what's the cheapest way to get 45,000 calories on the table, right? But what about if you dissolve into it, become part of this thing called your family? Rather than trying to remain separate, right? You dissolve into it and you elevate it. I think that's a good thing, don't you? Right? I think we'll do point number two as well. So salt connects with and elevates, right? So you're salt, you're not pepper. We don't come on top of the environments we're in. We dissolve into them, right? What was the warning Jesus said about the salt? Salt dissolves into the environment, but what happens if it loses its saltiness or it doesn't exist anymore? It's possible for you to dissolve into the environment of your workplace and not exist anymore. Your Christianity doesn't exist anymore in that space. Do you know how I I know it's possible? Because I've proven this. Right, You can operate in a workplace in such a way that your Christianity has no impact, no influence, doesn't bring any elevation, doesn't bring any lift. You know those times when people just get your side, your side of work and say, you know, there's something different about you? When they, when they say that to me, they're about to accuse me of something awful. Right? When it's you, they're about to say, are you a Christian? Right? There's something so good about you. For me, they say, they say something different about you. You're just such a jerk. Right? You can... No, that's not true. Actually, one time someone did, did recognize I was a Christian in the workplace. One time! <laughs> right? It's one time more than some of you, right? Here's the deal. It's not a competition. It's not a competition, but there, we, could be out, we could be better at this. It's not a competition, but Christ is calling us up the mountain. We could be saltier, couldn't we? But what do, we, do you know what normally happens when we try and be saltier? Normally we're just pepper, right? I'm going to bring, I'm going to make, I'm going to make Jesus famous in the workplace, right? And we bring our spicy Christian flavor, right, to a world that's not accustomed to it, right? You, some of you think you like hot food, but you haven't been to Wakasha's house for lunch. <laughs> you don't know what hot food is, right? Okay, so point number two is this. The light shines in the darkness. Does that sound self-explanatory? Jesus, in the, John chapter one, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. and The Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning and all things were created by Him and apart from Him, no one, no, not one thing was created. 
in him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. Right? So if we think about our picture of the universe, part of what we do is we dissolve into the world that we're, part, that we're in. That's our relationship with the earth. But part of our role is to be the light of the world. So we bring light. God, God's expecting us to bring, Jesus is expecting us to shine the light in our workplaces, at the same time as dissolving in and lifting the flavor up. These are the two pictures. We've got to dissolve in without becoming salty, without, sorry, without losing our saltiness, because our saltiness is what actually brings the elevation. And we've got to shine our light into where? The darkness. The light, light is first visible, and then it makes all things visible. So your faith is going to become visible, and then it's going to make other things visible. When, you, when, you're, when you're navigating through a space, so you think about an indoor space, so you're down the hallway, or maybe it's an unfamiliar space, even better. There's objects and shapes. When you look at those objects and shapes, and I don't know, if, do you ever wake up in the, in the middle of the night and you don't know who you are, where you, when you're born, where, you, where you're from, right? You don't even know yourself as a separate entity from the universe. You're just in this dark mass of space, Right? You, you, maybe you know, I'm not awake, but anyway, there's dark mass space, and you're looking around, and you're looking at all these shapes and things, and, and, and you're wrong about everything you see. <laughs> there's not a dragon there. That's not a person with a, that's not a giant hooded figure with a sickle. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? Anyway, you're looking around the room, and, and you're wrong about everything, aren't you? In an unfamiliar space, you're wrong about everything. All of your assumptions are wrong, all of it, until you turn the light on, and what are you now? Now, you, now you're right about, oh, that's this, that. You see everything because the light is shining. This is why when we go to work, we should share our theology. We should explain how we think the world works. We should have strong political views that we make public in the workplace because we're shining the light, isn't it? Because the Bible is really clear that we should make our ideas bright in the world. Isn't it? Or what was it? Good deeds. So the light of Christ in your workplace will look a lot more like a cake than it will be your spicy political takes. It will look a lot more like noticing that someone else is not doing 100% and maybe smiling at them, maybe starting a conversation, maybe not. It will look like good deeds. And our good deeds, what do they do for people? They let them see reality in a whole new way. Oh, but I'm really accustomed to sharing my ideas. That's good, but your ideas aren't the light of the world. Your good deeds are the light of the world. I have a theory that no sermons should ever be online. No pastors should be visible anywhere in the world. What we should see is Christians doing good deeds, right? Because that reveals the what? That's the thing that makes people go, wow, there must be a God in heaven. I love, I love, I love the story that Lucia came back from Shout Conference with. Um, whenever you go to Shout Conference, the kids come back with a particular thing. You know, oh, this particular story that captured their attention. And in the kids program, Saffron was sharing a story. I think it was Saffron. My, my bad if it got lost in translation, but the story went something like this. Saffron was at the supermarket, 
saw a family. You know, you can tell when someone hasn't been able to pay or whatever. There's sort of a there's a there's a dis, there's a disturbance in the force and like let check out fourteen, right? It's just like and couldn't pay. And Saffron stepped in and paid, right? Or got them home or drive them home afterwards, something like that. Anyway, she ended up driving them home. Maybe she paid for the groceries, but anyway, she drove them home. I should get the details of the story. Find them. You can find Saffron. Ask her. Get the details yourself. Now, drove them home and then. Oh, come in for a cup of tea, had a cup of tea, and then was able to share the gospel around this good deed. And, and you, you should have heard Lucia talking about it. Think about a shout conference for a kid. You're there with your mates for the whole week. There's no adults, only kids leaders. There's no adults there at all, right? Uh, you get on a bus, you go out to the space place, there's bouncy castles and running around, and there's comp- everything is competitive, there's a competition that begins at the very start, and it's a highly rigged and unfair competition full of drama and mayhem, right? Uh, and it goes right through to the end, and you get to be the winner. There's chanting and shouting and, uh, and then praise and worship music and amazing preaching. And the story that Lucia came home with was the thing that captured her heart was the story of Saffron just stepping in with a good deed without saying, I'm about to do a good deed, everybody. Let's just responding to this disturbed situation and then a family coming to Christ. The mum and the daughter there in Auckland and then on the phone, dad in Brazil. Also responding to Jesus. It's probably because Saffron's been to Bible college and has perfect theology. It's probably because she has the right Christian political view. Or is it just because she stepped in and gave the lady a ride home? It turns out there's probably more to do with the good deed that allowed the glory of God in heaven to be made real. So let's wrap up with some hard-hitting, challenging questions that you wouldn't ask yourself. Okay. What would it look like to be salt? Dissolving in and light shining forth. What is an action you could take today to be the light of God? I've got ideas of my own, but I'm not going to share them because my, my ideas will distract you from what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. What's your next step up look like? When it comes to following Jesus, Jesus is above us all and we're all below. In that crowd of mixture, or we've stepped out and said, no, I'm, I want to pursue Christ. And we're disciples somewhere on the road. The, the, the book of Psalms says that, the, or maybe Proverbs Psalms says, the road of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn. It begins tiny and it shines brighter and brighter till the full light of day. Another part of the Bible says that the road of the righteous winds upward. Definitely winds upward. We don't make a straight progress, do we? We're winding up. We're moving towards Christ. And we're all at different places in that journey. But I heard someone say on a podcast this morning, it takes eternity to cover an infinite distance at any speed. So if we're becoming more and more like Jesus, how long will it take us? If our journey is infinite, how far have you come? Well, you've still come nowhere. 
right? So we're, in so many ways, we're all in the same position in our pursuit of Christ, whether this is your first time you've ever heard about Jesus or whether you've been at church and you've been growing in God and God's done so many wonderful things in your life, we're still in the same position where we're at the bottom of the mountain looking up to Christ, wanting to move towards Him. Remember that it's by grace that we're saved, which means God did it. God's work in us as we've allowed God to work in us. He lifts us up. Remember that sandcastle? Adam. God makes Adam and then says, Adam, you should try this at the beach in the summer. Make a little sandcastle and then just tell that sandcastle, come on, mate, pull yourself together. You can do better than this. You need to rise up out of your earthly existence. No, God didn't demand Adam become a living spirit. God made him a living spirit. Isn't that a cool picture? It's a cool picture, all right? So our first step is to acknowledge Christ and allow Him to begin working in our world. Recognizing that our way of, our state of being and our way of living is far short of what it could be. But as God begins to work in our world, realigning us, recreating us, we become salt and light. We become blessed. We find dry ground. We find high points in our life. We get elevated in our journey. We begin to flourish in a way we never would have before.